Eight seconds, Barons put the wall in play. They look, down court it goes to flip back. He goes in, drives, shoots, it's blocked by Hartnett. Hartnett with the ball, four seconds, down court the Hemans. Two seconds, one second, the ball game is over. The Raiders win it, 125, 118. For the Scranton Miners, a great victory for the Scranton Miners here in Scranton Town this evening, and one which I truthfully feel will serve to carry the Miners to some real exciting contests in the future weeks. For the Miners, the top scorer playing a beautiful ball game, Jimmy Beheim with 30 points. <laughs> 30 points? That's a lot. I didn't score 30 a lot down there. That was pretty good, but yeah, that was a big rivalry game, and it was, it was good to win that game. Big, big game. They're Scranton Wilkes Bear are pretty close together. Oh, we're, we're lucky that this radio broadcast has been preserved because you're going to have to play this for Buddy and Jimmy and Sissy so that <laughs> they believe you scored 30 in a game. They don't think I could even play. They don't think I was any good. <laughs> <laughs> well, those had to be some really special times. I mean, professional basketball, like you said when we first started, only 10 or 12 NBA teams at the time. If there were 10 men to a team, that's about 120 there's over 350, 400 players in the NBA today. So you're holding a lot of NBA guys. Were, yeah, there were a lot of really good players and everybody lived in, in New York or Philly, Jersey, couple guys from Washington because you, everybody had to drive in. Everybody had a, a regular job pretty much during the week. It was a really competitive league, really good coaches, really good players. A lot of NBA players dropped down to play in the league. Uh, or they were on their way up. It was, uh, it was a heck of a leap. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. This is your Scranton Miners Station, WICK Radio in Scranton, and we're happy tonight. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, now, everybody. How are you? My name is Tim Hanlon, and of course... This is Good Seat Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for finding us, downloading us, putting us in your earbuds, you know, whatever you do to kind of listen in and, and, and digest and, and ingest whatever we got for you each and every week. We appreciate it. And uh, we're going to really get into the depths of what used to be in pro sports this week. And uh, it's a topic we've been very much looking forward to once we uh, first found out that uh a book about it was going to be coming out. Yes, as you got the sort of hint, and I got to get into the specifics of what you just heard. Uh, Sil Sobel and Jay Rosenstein are our guests this week, and this is an exploration of what used to be known as the Eastern Professional Basketball League, otherwise known as the EBL. Uh, it was first known as the Eastern Pennsylvania Basketball League, and we'll get into the sort of the roots of that story because a lot of this league was centered in Pennsylvania, the eastern part of it, but not uh, for its uh, latter years when it was known as the Eastern uh, Basketball Association. And that was, in uh, as we kind of hinted at and nibbled at in some previous episodes, the precursor to what became the CBA, the Continental Basketball Association. Fascinating stories around all of that kind of stuff, but we're going to get into the uh, the years of the Eastern Pennsylvania Basketball League. Well, it was one year. That was its initial year back in, in the, night, the late 1940s. Uh, that became for many years the EPBL, the Eastern Professional Basketball League, or shortened the EBL. And um, we get into 
uh, a fascinating sort of story. Very, uh, I guess you could call it semi-pro-ish, but it certainly was very much professional. This was around the time uh, during the uh, late 1940s, 1950s, and a lot of the 1960s and the early 1970s before uh, it converted into becoming the CBA and more officially related to the NBA. Uh, you might remember those years as somewhat ragtag. I mean, the NBA was itself relatively new back in the 50s, um, itself having sort of morphed into existence from the BAA and uh, the NBL and, and some other sort of uh, tributaries, as we've talked about. Uh, the ABL, which sort of came and went for a couple of years, was all part of that mix. But this, um, I guess you would call it a minor league, the EBL, was very unofficially part of that landscape. And we'll talk about uh, with uh, Messer Sobel and Rosenstein in a few minutes, uh, some of the relationships, uh, uh, ill-fitting, uh, non-formal, uh, but uh, certainly related. And a lot of the players and the people that sort of made up this league, very much a, a, a sort of a hard hat kind of lunch pail kind of deal. Uh, yes, professional, but you were playing in sort of small to mid-sized cities uh, or big towns, if you will, in Pennsylvania, largely you know, they, they expand a little bit into some other uh, other states and other other places. But uh, weekend play, I mean, it was not uncommon, frankly, for folks to have real daytime jobs during the week uh, and then uh, literally gas up the car or maybe even a van and uh, trek into two, maybe three cities uh, during a, a, a weekend or an extended weekend and play and then back to the grind uh, that next Monday morning. Uh, and uh, in that clip that you heard, Jim Beheim, a legendary coach of the Syracuse Orange, and you know how that pains me to say that as a Georgetown Hoya fan and undergrad. Uh, by the way, uh, quick note, Sil Sobel and Jay Rosenstein are also Georgetown grads, 1977, a little older than me. Uh, it's very rare when I can say that, but, um, uh, you must understand that here we are, we in this conversation, we're going to have three Georgetown fans kind of talking about, uh, the, the legendary Jim Beheim, and you know how difficult that's got to be for us, but I digress, but let's uh, start with that clip. Uh, Mike Waters is the, uh, Syracuse post standard slash Syracuse.com sports writer slash editor slash producer uh, of this great clip that you can find on YouTube. Uh, it was just published in February. That's, of course, uh, Jim Beheim uh, remembering uh, a game that was uh, discovered, found uh, by a, a Syracuse grad who just happened to stumble across some reel-to-reel -reel recordings of some old Scranton Miners games, Scranton being one of the major and long-lasting teams in the Eastern Professional Basketball League, and an estate sale of all places, which, by the way, gives us hope that there's lots of other great archival stuff still out there in uh, the vast uh, uh, attics and, and basements of, of America across a whole bunch of things, hopefully uh, in, in leagues and teams and stuff that we uh, love to re relish. Uh, and uh, it was a clip from a game of the Scranton Miners that uh, Jim Beheim played for against the Wilkes-Barre Barons uh, from February 4th, 1968. On WICK Radio in Scranton, and um, that that is literally a clip from the game, and uh, and some of uh, Jim's uh, remembrances of of that process, and we get into uh, a whole bunch of that. That is just a, a mere snippet of the uh, life and times of this uh, this very interesting and uh, seminal, frankly, and oft overlooked. Uh, league. And uh, that's our conversation this week with Sil Sobel and Jay Rosenstein 
uh, as we talk about the Eastern Professional Basketball League uh, and its contributions to uh, the founding, uh, the running, the success of uh, the NBA, the ABA shows up for a bunch of years. Uh, the CBA, of course, got its start from this uh, ragtag EBL. Uh, we even get into the story as to how that occurred. Uh, the Eastern Basketball Association, as uh, this league was known in uh, over the last 10 years of its existence, uh, before the CBA actually became uh, the official name of it. Uh, let's see. The CBA became... Let's see, the Eastern Basketball Association was started in 1970. That was a rebrand. And then the CBA itself came, uh, I want to say, about almost 10 years later uh, than that. Uh, and the story of the Anchorage North Northern Knights, the Anchorage Northern Knights, uh, absolutely has a role to play in all this. Uh, and uh, that was the last year of the EBA that they joined in 1977-78. And the year after that is when the CBA started. So stay tuned for that. You know, come for the Pennsylvania teams, stick around for Anchorage and uh, the doorstep of the CBA. All of that and more coming up in our conversation with Syl and Jay in just a few moments time. This is fun and really Really enlightening stuff. Um, let's see. This week we're gonna we're gonna tease a brand new sponsor. I I apologize in advance. I don't not I do not have the official uh, promo code for you yet. Uh, but if you tune in in a couple of weeks, you'll have it, uh, and you'll see it on all of our uh, social media and emails and newsletters and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but if uh, you just can't wait, I highly recommend uh, our brand new sponsor. One of them coming up. Uh, it's Rebound Vintage Hoops reboundvintagehoops.com, all one word. And uh, like the name implies, it's all great logos on all kinds of great shirts and hoodies and sweatshirts and t-shirts and all that kind of stuff. And boy, oh boy, do they come through in spades this week at reboundvintagehoops.com. You want that Allentown Jets logo commemorated in a long sleeve t-shirt or uh, a short sleeve shirt or a coffee mug or whatever. How about the Easton Madisons? You remember them? From I think they played from 1956 to 1962 in the EBL. They are commemorated in in many forms of shirts and and other garb. The Lancaster Lightning, which uh, then became later on and years later the Lancaster Red Roses. <laughs> yes, there they are. They're all there for you. Uh, let's see what else. The Scranton Aces. Yes, that was. Uh, uh, another name, the Scranton Apollos were also part of the mix. The Wilkes-Barre Barons, we mentioned earlier, all of them and more, all there for you. It uh, In a great, you know, sportswear uh, garb, it's all there for you at reboundvintagehoops.com. Again, reboundvintagehoops.com. Uh, and uh, again, we apologize. We don't yet have the uh, promo code, but um, we will uh, certainly pass it on to you. And we thank our pal Kevin Schultz. Uh, for uh, allowing us to uh, uh, bring them to you uh, and uh, and timely. So for this conversation about the uh, Eastern Professional Basketball League, let's get into it now, shall we? Here's our conversation with uh, fellow Hoyas, Sil Sobel and Jay Rosenstein. Here's our conversation from last week. Please, as always, sit back and enjoy I was just, you know, as a setup, so fair disclosure, I went to Georgetown undergrad, right? So I have this, at least- So did we. So did we. So did we. You did not. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. 
Come on, really? Class of, <laughs> class of 77 for both of us. Both Come of on, us. I'm class, class of 77. I did Boy not know that. buddy. Holy mackerel. All right. What year well, are you? Class of what? Class of 88. 88. Uh, cool. Wow. I, I talk about a double double word oh. score. I did not know that. That's uh, well, hard there to There you go. Wow. What are the odds? Um, so, Pretty all right. Nice. I guess you guys could relate then because yeah, I'm watching the, the college hoops tournament and yeah. – um, I continue to marvel. I, I mean, you know, after years and years of, you know, just uh, hatred, I guess, of course, of, of Syracuse and Jim Beheim, you know, <laughs> learning, you know, as a, as a Hoya uh, fan and arguably long <clears throat> you know, suffering over the last uh, number of years. Although, you know, we had a pretty good, uh, uh, we overachieved certainly this year. Great but, run, I, yeah. but I look at Jim Beheim right, as a great entree to our conversation, because this is one of the guys uh, that you highlight in this um in this awesome book. Uh, and I think it just speaks to, there's just one example of, you know, just the deep, rich uh, cultural and um, systemic uh, part of the history of, of, of basketball on all fronts that this Eastern pro basketball league uh, uh, brought about. And I guess I'm just really curious, how do you guys stumble into this, uh, this topic in the first place? Um, I'll, I'll kick it off. Um well, Jay and I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, um, which suddenly is really on the map. And the Eastern League uh, had a team in Scranton the whole time we were there. Uh, and we were little guys. We were maybe seven, eight years old and, you know, went to our first Eastern League basketball games with our parents and just totally fell in love with it. I mean, we loved everything about it. We're in a, you know, what's a high school gym now, the Scranton Catholic Youth Center. We're watching these really good big guys play basketball. Back then in the early 60s, there were big crowds. It was really exciting. And you're right on top of the action. I mean, you're seeing really good basketball players up close. And, uh, you know, we just, it became our thing. We'd go to all the games, either, you know, with our dads or with one of the dads or sit together, whatever. And we grew up, you know, and did this all through high school. Went to college at Georgetown together, kind of went our separate ways, but still stayed close and in touch. And always, whenever we get together, there'd always be stories about the Eastern League. We'd start talking because there was some comical stories and some great players. And inevitably, we'd say, you know, someday, Jay, we got to write a book, or someday, Phil, we got to write a book. Because we were both writers. We both had careers that involved writing. And about four years ago, you know, I had retired and Jay was still working, but contemplating retirement. And uh, we said, you know what? We always say someday we're going to write a book. Well, now's the day. Let's start. So, you know, it was something that we had always talked about and we'd always stayed close to it. And we just kind of dug in and it kind of built up its own momentum. And and Tim, I'd like to add to that uh, just a fun story uh, involving my family. Um, And it is an example of how our family was an Eastern League Scranton Miners family. Um, in uh, 1964, my brother turned 13 and he was going to have a bar mitzvah party. It turns out that my parents made a mistake by scheduling the bar mitzvah party on the night of a Miners game. And when my brother found this out, he, he just he put up a fuss. He's threatened. He's, you know, I'll, I'll go to the party, but I'm going to leave and go to try to watch the game. Oh, that's the other thing. 
the CYC in Scranton, the Catholic Youth Center, that's where the miners have played for many years. They were one block away from where the venue was for the bar mitzvah party. My brother was saying, I'm going. No, my parents said, no, you can't, blah, blah, blah. Anyhow, the whole thing got resolved because my parents agreed to let my brother and, and me and our friends and cousins, whatever, listen to the game on a pocket transistor radio. And that's what solved the whole problem. So I think, you know, that's, that's, that's one of my early memories of my belief that, yeah, the Eastern League really meant a lot to me and to a lot of other people. So this is, this is, this is a story that, that's rooted, I guess, literally and figuratively in Scranton. And uh, sure enough, Jim Beheim, as I was alluding to earlier, uh, shows up in that story because he was part of that team, I think, for a year or two, no? Uh, six years. Six years, yeah. Six years. Okay, there you go. So, um, so maybe that's just a, a nice entree because you're describing uh, a thematic that uh, is very uh, common in our, in our various travels over the last four years of doing the show. And that, that's sort of a sort of a childhood sort of uh, uh, memory or introduction, I guess, to this thing called sports, right? Whether it's pro or, you know, and, and literally in your, in your, your figurative hometown, right? You're, you're literally getting to see top tier or pretty darn good or close to top tier uh, professional basketball, literally on your doorstep. And that's gotta be a thrilling and almost uh, hard to believe kind of uh uh, phenomenon when you're growing up as a kid, right? Literally down the street, go, go to see some hoops. Well, I mean, and, and here's the thing, and it really wasn't until Jay and I got into the project, and you're right, this was top-tier basketball. But at the time, we didn't realize it because in the 1960s, there were eight, nine, maybe 10 NBA teams. I mean, the league just started expanding, expanding in the mid-60s when the ABA came along. So there's, say, 10 NBA teams tops. The roster had 10 players or so. So there are 100 guys in the NBA. Um, where do the next best players play? Well, the next best league is the Eastern League. Now there are 450 players in the NBA today. So do the math. You know, those 100 guys in the Eastern League would have been NBA players today, and some of them might have been all-star players today. At least Hubie Brown said that. So, yes, you're right. This is really top-tier basketball. We knew it was good, you know, and we're living in a small town. We see one NBA game on TV a week. So we didn't have a standard of comparison, but we know these are really good players. And, um, you know, here we are watching these guys up close and identifying with them. And you talk about Jim Beheim. Well, you know, Beheim kind of looks pretty much the same way now as he did then, except he's a little older looking. He was always kind of and, scrawny. And I think he whines a, a lot more, but that's me as a Georgetown fan growing up hating Syracuse. Well, but that's, I digress. Well, that was fair. But uh, actually, I got to tell you a funny story at the end uh, uh, of this. But, but Bayheim was, you know, a skinny guy with glasses. Well, I mean, you know, none of us were giants. And we had a friend, Jay and I, you know, our mutual best friend growing up was a guy named Scotty Greenhouse, who was also a skinny guy with glasses. Well, you know, Scotty adored Bayheim. As a matter of fact, and he had the same kind of round-shouldered, you know, look, and he didn't have much of a jump shot. His jump shot was more like a lean and a push. But Scotty adored Bayheim, and we believe Scotty was the one of all of us who ended up having a college basketball career, you know. So he picked the right guy to emulate. But Bayheim came along in the last year; he was a rookie, the last year of the Eastern League before the ABA, and then when the ABA was formed in '67. 
20 to 30 of the best players in the Eastern League all left for the ABA. So Bayheim goes from being like a sixth, seventh man to being one of the top players in the minors and one of the top players in the league. So he actually had a very good career there. And uh, he, he cannot say enough good things about the Eastern League. I got to tell you, being a Georgetown guy like you, you know, um, I was not a Syracuse fan over the years. But I interviewed Jim and, and, and uh, you know, told him I'm from Scranton. And as kind of low-key a guy as he is, he got absolutely effusive when he was talking about the Eastern League. It was clearly a great experience in his life. He loved playing in it, loved the fans, loved the whole experience, loved being a 23-year-old kid who was, you know, a graduate assistant coach at Syracuse, commuting down to Scranton for the games and driving back up, you know, to Syracuse to get there and get three hours of sleep before he'd start his graduate courses and teaching and student teaching or whatever and coaching. And really, really was a great interview and, and just so helpful. Uh, so when the interview was over, I said, Coach, I, I got a confession to make. He said, what's that? I said, I went to Georgetown. He said, well, that's all right. It, it's a great school. I said, but I got another thing to admit. He said, what's that? I said, my daughter went to grad school at Syracuse. He said, aha, you atoned for your sins. So uh, <laughs> guy's got a sense of humor. I'm, I'm now a big fan. You know, what can I say? Well, as we're recording this, uh, they, they're, they're making their way through the tournament this year. And I, I'm proud to say, actually, that I've reformed and I have them going uh, maybe another round or so. So, uh, you know, it's a real testament to, uh, you know, his uh, his staying power. And, um, you know, he's he's absolutely sort of salt of the earth and, and uh, foundational in this story, uh, among a whole bunch of others, which we're, which I'm sure we'll get to. So maybe you can um, kind of maybe uh, give us a step back here. Uh, and uh, help us uh, attempt a three-point shot in terms of sort of what is this league sort of in its formation. It actually started in Pennsylvania, uh, oddly enough. Uh, Maybe sort of maybe set the tone about sort of the the scenario around this, because as we've learned in a lot of different conversations, right, there was a lot of, um, um, I don't know, maturation that sort of happened in the 30s and the 40s, right? A lot of ragtagness around what this pro basketball thing was going to look like. And maybe you can put the, the Eastern Eastern League sort of in, in the midst of that and, and how it became such a crucial part in it in the decades to come. Sure. Um, the league started in 1946. And at that time, it was kind of a post-war boom of, um, of expansion, of formation of, uh, of basketball leagues. You had two... Uh, major leagues, professional leagues in existence at that time, the American Basketball League, ABL, and the National Basketball uh, League, the, uh, the NBL. And um, 1946, World War II is over. You have a lot of athletes, former college players coming back. They're looking to play basketball, make a few bucks. You've got people who've got some entertainment, you know, some, some money in their pocket, and the economy's starting to boom, and people want they want to go out. They want to have a good time. So you had a whole bunch of minor leagues, as you say, ragtag kind of rough and tumble minor leagues, especially in the Northeast, because New York City at that time was the mecca uh, for college basketball, and college basketball was the game. Pro basketball was just sort of transitioning from uh, barnstorming independent teams to to organized leagues, and um, uh, a group of like entrepreneurs and and minor league uh, team owners in Pennsylvania, 
they're they're in you know so some of those those rough and tumble semi pro leagues, and they'd like something a little more professional. They're also hoping to get their teams into like the ABL or another league that's forming called the BAA, the Basketball Association of America, which eventually would become the uh, the NBA. Yeah, so it was, it was sort of sort of a group grope, I guess, in terms of trying to form something along the lines of professional. And it sounds like this was for some folks, especially in the smaller markets and in Pennsylvania and elsewhere, sort of maybe the, hey, we better get our hats into the ring if we're going to even get into this game. Yeah, I think that's right. And, 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 and what you see is, you know, a lot of teams forming and changing leagues and, and uh, changing cities and players playing for multiple teams. And it's really like the wild, wild west. I mean, it's a free for all. There's even, you know, uh, the college players who want to keep their eligibility, but make a few bucks. So they're playing under assumed names where one team of Villanova players, including Paul Arizon, was wearing masks and called themselves the Mask Marvels, and they're playing games. So you've got all this going on, and um, a, a group of uh, you know sports promoters, sports team owners in Pennsylvania, Eastern Pennsylvania, decided, well, let's form our own league. Now, supposedly one of them, Eddie White, who was the uh, impresario in Wilkes-Barre, wanted to get into the BAA, but Red Auerbach didn't like him, so he couldn't get in the BAA. So they said, oh, heck with it, let's form our own league. So this is how the Eastern League is formed. You know, they had like six teams, five in Pennsylvania, one in Binghamton, New York. It lasted eight games, and then they came down to Pottsville, Pennsylvania. And uh, they're getting mostly, you know, Pennsylvania area players, local players. And uh, funny thing is, uh, after the first year, uh, the two teams who played in the championship game, Wilkes-Barre and Lancaster, both jumped to the ABL, the American Basketball League. So this is kind of, you know, playing itself out through the late 40s. And in 49, um, the um, BAA and NBL form uh, merged to form uh, what's the NBA. Um, so that cuts a number of professional teams that kind of trim some of the, the poorer franchises out of there. And that frees up some really good players. And now the Eastern League gets its first shot of really talented players around 49 50 as some of the former teams who didn't make it through the merger now are kind of letting their players go and players are looking for good places to play. So that, you know, gets us into the 1950s. The league has got a little more clout. You've got stars like Jack McCluskey and um, uh, Jack Ramsey um, um, uh, played for Sunbury and were known as uh, Sunbury's pair of Jacks. Both of them had great coaching careers. McCluskey became a GM in the uh, in in the NBA for for the Detroit Pistons of Isaiah Thomas. So uh, the league is starting to elevate, and uh, now that gets us into the mid or early fifties, around fifty two, fifty three. And Jay, why don't you take over? Because now the league goes through another transition. Sure, thanks, Bill. Uh, well, in nineteen fifty one, um, police in New York were uh, uh, alerted to uh, the uh, some some uh, gangsters, uh, gamblers, whatever you would call it, um, making um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, bribes, bribes to college players to fix games, um, and the result of that was more than thirty college players, including many of the best players in the country, they were arrested on charges of illegal gambling um, and um, 
these were mostly young players, good kids, but they were poor, maybe immature. Uh, many of them went to prison, uh, jail for a while, and uh, all actually end up being banned from the NBA for life, not just for a year, but for life. These 30 or so players uh, were, 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 were having to you know, go the rest of their career without playing in the NBA. And what that meant for the Eastern League was that um, uh, an opportunity to, to get those banned players into our, their league. Uh, initially, the Eastern, in the Eastern League, uh, they didn't want to take the players banned by the NBA, but pretty soon they decided, uh, you know, let's bring them in, especially the ones with the NBA quality and uh, get some attendance up and so on. And I'd just like to mention uh, the, the amazingly great players who, you know, you haven't heard of as being NBA because they were banned. Uh, so the amazingly great players who did enter the Eastern League in that time. I'll try to go through them quickly, but um, there's a, a player by the name of Sherman White. Does that ring a bell with you? Sure. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, well, Sherman White was the best player in the country back in 1950-51. You know, he's definitely headed for stardom in the NBA. He needed 77 more points to set an all-time scoring record. And then this thing happened. Um, so uh, that was not to be. He ended up joining the, NBA, the uh, Eastern League and immediately became a, a top star. And he, he, uh, Sherman White played in the Eastern League for about 10 years. Another guy who this is a different kind of uh, um, gambling situation, a guy named Jack Molinas. I imagine you, you, you know who he is. Of course. Yep. Um, gr- a great scorer out of Columbia, uh, a genius as many people have said, an amazing brain. Um, he started, he graduated from Columbia, started in the NBA with the Fort Wayne Pistons. He was named to uh, the all-star team as a rookie. And, um, but he was quickly barred from the NBA for betting on 10 Fort Wayne Pistons games. He didn't bet against them. He said, I, you know, he was betting in favor of them, uh, the uh, NBA did not believe that, did not want to believe that. And so this Jack Molinas also banned from the, from the NBA, and he had a, a great career in the Eastern League. And um, another person, and I guess I, I'm, I'm sure you probably know this, this, this name, Bill Spivey. Of course, probably the most, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. So Bill Spivey, you know, seven foot four All American out of uh, Kentucky. Uh, two teammates accused him of gum, of gambling, and he, Spivey said all along, he, I never did it, and he was never convicted of any wrongdoing, passed two lie detector tests. Um, even so, the NBA still refused to let him in. And so Bill Spivey ended up in the Eastern League, and he was a great player in the Eastern League for, uh, for 10 years. Um, and uh, just a couple more names, and I'll let you go, because I know that uh, – we, we have a lot of lots to, to, to uh, mention, but the, I think you, you'll know these same players. Um, back in the uh, 1950-51 time period, the uh, CCA, CCNY team, City College of New York, was the best team in the country. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a college powerhouse in the day. Exactly. They, they won the 1950 NIT and NCAA tournaments. That's when the NIT tournament was the, was the main one. And they had, they had great players, a guy named Eddie Roman, who's a center, Floyd Lane, who's a smooth guard, 
um, out of New York, and um, Ed Warner, an All-American forward. These, these three players should have been in the NBA, banned by the NBA. They went to the Eastern League. Floyd Lane had probably the best career uh, among those three. And the other ones I just mentioned is, uh, would be um, two other players who played with Bill Spivey at Kentucky, um, Ralph Beard. Uh, he's an All-American guard, and he, he um, played in the NBA. Alex Groza is the other person I was going to mention. He also played in the NBA. Then, as a result of those 1951 scandals, uh, they, uh, they were uh, banned by the NBA. So, um, yeah, so, so what this also did was give the Eastern League a great opportunity to get super players, good guys, and it, it put them, you know, definitely is the closest thing to the, uh, the NBA. Well, in the midst of that, though, that's so I, I, but it's by no means just a, quote unquote, reclamation project for, for these players. Right. I mean, this is this is relatively top tier. And I'm guessing that as the BAA and the NBL and, and the remnants of the ABL kind of all sort of uh, come together to form what ultimately becomes the NBA, this EBL is kind of, you know, still out there and and showing some quality play but but I'm, I'm guessing that most of the spotlight i guess from the national uh professional side of things is kind of going towards this this new nba thing and where does that leave the ebl and, and maybe not so great with with maybe some of that tarnish or do, does that not have an effect or is that just you know just a does that fade into the background the ebl um at that time is an acknowledged minor league. I mean, it's it's a weekend league. It's not, you know, uh, a full-time league uh, playing, uh, you know, full-week schedule. So it's acknowledged as the minor league. Um, it is well-known in basketball circles. You know, players who are up in the NBA on their way down, particularly if they're located somewhere on the Eastern Seaboard, they're going to end up playing a few games in the Eastern League, we're going back and forth, up and down between the Eastern League and the NBA. So you've got the Eastern League, you've got a few other professional leagues that are kind of popping up in the Midwest and, and the West Coast, you know, they kind of come and go. And then, of course, you've got AAU basketball. AAU basketball was still going on in the 50s, and it was legit, um, you know, um, but, you know, the, the, the Eastern League is, is the acknowledged uh, top-tier minor league in the country. The NBA is still struggling, you know, at this time in the early 50s. Um, yeah, that, that's an important point. Keep going. But that's uh, that's lost on a lot of people. That's, you know, yeah, it, years, right? It, it is not what the what it is today. I mean, for example, in the in the in the 50s, the best basketball team in the world was the Harlem Globetrotters. Um, they weren't just entertainers. They weren't just showmen. They were really good basketball players who because of the color line, which we'll talk about uh, you know, soon uh, in, in the NBA, they didn't have any other professional opportunities. So they played on basically a barnstorming team, the Globetrotters, playing their uh, foil, the team that traveled with them. But in the late 40s or in the 40s, there were also tournaments where they were playing NBA teams and beating them. In fact, when they lose games to NBA teams, people said it was because Abe Saperstein, the Globetrotters owner didn't want to offend the NBA. He 
wanted to get his team in the NBA at some point. So he didn't want to keep embarrassing them. But the, 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 the NBA got off the ground because um, Abe Saperstein and Eddie Gottlieb, who was the owner of Philadelphia and one of the giants in the uh, NBA's finding, founding, were good friends. And uh, Saperstein agreed to play exhibition games as kind of the warm-up to NBA games. So you go to Madison Square Garden and you get a banner. Harlem Globetrotters playing second game. Philadelphia Warriors versus New York Knickerbockers. People would come to see the Globetrotters play and maybe or maybe not stick around for the NBA game. So, you know, this is this is uh, NBA basketball in its early years. It's not really a big-time thing. Uh, it's not maybe until George Mikan, you know, um, and the Minneapolis Lakers start getting good. You're getting into the mid-50s, late-50s. Uh, the league starts picking up some stature. But the Eastern League is is a step behind uh, and um, in, in terms of, you know, competitive quality, particularly once the gamblers, the guys implicated in the gambling scandal, the fixers, as they were called, joined the league. Yeah, I mean, you had Sherman White, you had Jack Molinas, you had Bill Spivey, who would have been, he would have been the, the center between Mike and Wilt. Uh, Bill Spivey was, as Jay said, you know, seven, you know, seven foot three, seven four, whatever, big guy could shoot could move. Um, he would have been the great center of the 1950s, uh, but he's playing in Scranton and Wilkes-Barre. Um, so you've got really talented players there, but they're playing on a pretty small scale and um, within the basketball community, certainly well-respected and well-known. But the important part of this story is that they're really ours. You know, the Eastern League teams belong to the people of Scranton, they belong to the people of Easton, the people of of Allentown and these cities really fall in love with these teams. And there's this love story going on uh, and these rivalries going on, particularly between Scranton and Wilkes-Barre, which kind of grew out of, you know, the coal country rivalries back in the days when each town had its own baseball teams, you know, and each coal mine had its own, had, had its own uh, uh, teams. So you had all these, these little rivalries going on in these small towns. And uh, it was, uh, it was an intimate thing. Yeah, well, why don't we talk about that? So give us a sense of sort of what uh, what these games were like, where they're played, how big or how small the audiences were, uh, how how integrated into the fabric of those these communities. I mean, you're mentioning kind of weekend-ish kind of play. I mean, are these folks living and domiciling in those markets? Are they kind of, you know, vagabonding their way in and out? And uh, give, us, give us sort of some days in the life here of of what this is like, especially in the 50s and and maybe early 60s as things are starting to gel all around them, I guess, too. Well, yeah, I just uh, I, I think it, it to me, it goes back to, you know, fans in small towns, um, uh, very, you know, rapid boosters of these hometowns, highly vocal. Um, Affordably priced, I'm assuming, as well. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, also, I, I don't know if still mentioned this, these, these gyms were usually, at least in the 50s, 40s, 50s, and maybe early 60s, uh, smoky gyms. Uh, there were no restrictions on smoking, and there was a lot of smoking done in those games. Um, you would see um, men in, um, you know, a nice uh, black or blue uh, coats, I mean, suits, coats, whatever. Uh, they they, they um, stepped up to... Uh, Come to the to the uh, east the Eastern League game uh, 
you know, by uh, dressing up. Um, what else? Um, it, it's just the, the, oh, I'll tell you something else that Sylvan and I, could, you know, did. After Eastern League games, uh, the players would go in, they'd shower, come, uh, come out, and they'd, they'd, they'd mingle with each other. A lot of these guys knew each other. They, these players were very, very receptive to, you know, talking to a kid. Um, I've talked to many, many, many times to, to uh, you know, players after games. And, uh, you know, it's just like, oh, my God, this is the this is these guys are amazing athletes. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sitting next to them. <laughs> so um, th- that's, you know, kind of part of my my memories. Um, so what do you what do you have on that? Well, you know, some of them did stay in in the in the town. So I can remember Bill Spivey uh, lived in Scranton, and right. he he started a business as a he had a construction company. Most of them did not. It, it was a commuter league, and um, you know most of the players. Like I say the league started. There was kind of an evolution. It started with guys, local guys, you know, mostly from the hometown or near the hometown, or definitely Pennsylvania colleges. Then when the uh, uh, NBL broke up and you had more good players, you started getting a whole Philadelphia contingent following Stan Novak. Stan Novak was a great player and he became a player coach in Sunbury and he started bringing his buddies from Philadelphia. You had Novak, Jerry Rulo, uh, Ramsey, McCoskey. Uh, so you had the whole Philadelphia group and they carpool. Stan Novak had this great carpool over the years. That included some some just some great Philadelphia players. Novak was a longtime coach, but basically coached for the whole lifespan of the Eastern League before going on to be a scout with his buddy McCluskey for Detroit. Um, and um, then when the guys from uh, the Fixers came in, they were mostly New York City oriented. So you had New York City carpools. And I mean, the stories are told and they're absolutely true about players, you know, kind of meeting someplace in New York or at King of Prussia Mall outside of Philadelphia and saying, all right, who's going to Scranton? You go in that car. Who's going, you know, who's going to Allentown? You go in that car. Who's going to Trenton? You go to that car. And uh, you'd, you'd be riding in the car with players from the other team. God help you if there was a fight. And there are often fights in the Easter League. I don't know what happened on those ways home sometimes when you had opponents getting in the same car together. But, uh, you know, so these guys, they're driving to games. And, uh, you know, it's a vagabond kind of lifestyle. They work, you know, a, a full-time job back in their home city. Uh, sometimes those games are late. And sometimes, I mean, it's winter and you're driving back roads in Pennsylvania. Uh, you get stuck in snowstorms. There were some horrific stories uh, of, of some of the, the, the storms these guys had to drive through. And they're driving through the night. And they're getting back first thing in the morning. So, you know, you kind of had that going on. I mean, these guys, they were gym rats. They loved playing. They'd do anything to play. And some of them did harbor dreams of getting up to the NBA. But, you know, back then, an NBA player is making five, seven thousand in the 50s, certainly five, seven thousand dollars for a season. The guys in the Eastern League are making maybe a hundred, 150, if it's a real good player, 200 bucks a game for a 28 game season. And then hopefully they'll get in the playoffs and make a little more. Uh, but you add that to, you know, them having a full-time job as a teacher or coach or salesperson or whatever, uh, they're making decent money. So, you know, they weren't taking that huge financial hit uh, and career-wise probably getting ahead by not being a fringe player in the NBA and playing instead in the Eastern League 
picking up some money on the weekend and starting their careers. So uh, it was an interesting existence, you know, certainly during, like I said, the first 10, 15 years of the Eastern League. Things started changing in the 60s, but during the formative years, you sat kind of had that, that, that real, uh, you know, it was, it was, there was a pioneering spirit to it. Hey, about, some, uh, you go ahead. T- uh, Tim? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, there's a, and while we're talking about driving, there's an interesting story about a guy named Bill Green. I don't know if that name rings a bell with you. That um, one does not. Okay. Well, Bill Green uh, was the top draft, draft pick of the Celtics in 1963. He was a very, I think he was about 6'8", big guy, tough guy, could have played in the NBA, but he never did, and, and, he, and he never did for one reason. He had a fear of flying. He was a tremendous player, All-American uh, at Colorado State. In addition to being drafted by the Celtics, he was drafted by the Boston Red Sox and the Dallas Cowboys. He was an amazing player, uh, but he is, when he, in his senior year of college, he was on a terrible flight going back after a game, going back to Colorado. Um, uh, he was quoted as saying the plane was out of control. There was baggage flying everywhere. People are praying, all that stuff. He had a second um, situ- uh, situation like that, uh, a, a, a tough flight. And he just said, I can't do this. I am never going to fly again. Celtics brought him to training camp. They, um, uh, um, what was I going to say? Um, oh, offered, yeah, they offered professional help to see, see if they could, you know, clean him of these, these, uh, these, these, these issues he's got. And he would not, he said, no, I can't do it. And he never played um, in the NBA. He played for eight seasons in the Eastern league, mostly with Wilkes-Barre and Scranton, uh, really a solid player. And, uh, and yeah, he was, uh, I think, uh, oh, Stan, Stan uh, Pavlik who said that um, uh, even his, the players he was uh, on his team, they were scared of him. Uh, he had that look, and he was a, he was a t- tough guy. But uh, anyhow, that that's I think a, a really interesting story. All right, what's this? Blue Chew. All right, Blue Chew is making waves and bringing more confidence to the bedroom, guys. Hey, Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. Blue Chew's tablets combat, he says, all forms of ED and can help men gain extra confidence for when it's time to perform. Blue Chew is an online prescription service, so no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. And it ships right to your door in a discreet package. The process is simple. Sign up at bluechew.com. Consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part? It's all done online. Blue Chew's licensed medical providers work with you to find the right ingredient and strength for your prescription. Don't like swallowing pills? No problems here. Blue Chew's Sildenafil and Tadalafil, you say that three times fast, tablets, are chewable. Yes, Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA and they prepare and ship direct. So it's cheaper than a pharmacy. So 
if you could benefit from some from some extra confidence when it's time to <clears throat> perform, visit bluechew.com for more details and important safety information. And of course, we've got a special deal for our great listeners. Try Blue Chew free. Yeah, free when you use the promo code GOODSEATS at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's Blue Chew. That's B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W. BlueChew.com. Promo code GOODSEATS to receive your first month free. And of course, we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring this little uh, episode here. And now back to our conversation. then though the dynamic of these players and and i also want to get maybe to the ownership too maybe and, and the and the towns and where the cities that they're playing in uh because all the while right in the 50s and the 60s uh there are a number of uh situations uh i guess sort of on the uh the the top tier pro level right the the formation of the nba from the two or two and a half tributaries that sort of created that uh in the early 60s, you have Abe Saperstein with the American Basketball League and the three-point scoring line and that kind of stuff. And then by 1967, of course, we all know the ABA was starting to get off the ground too. So there was, plus this NBA was starting to solidify at least a, a somewhat, right? With some major, some major, you know, uh, uh, rooting and thing in places like New York and Boston and, and the like. So I, I guess what I'm trying to get a sense is, is what, you know, what are the, what's going on in the mindset of the players and the owners and the fans uh, around this Eastern League um, while these uh, professional endeavors, top-tier professional endeavors, shall we say, uh, are really starting to kind of, uh, you know, at least make some some gallant attempts at, uh, at making this professional basketball thing, you know, much more major league uh, than it was. I, I got to think that there's there's a – plenty of folks in the Eastern league that are looking at that going either. I don't necessarily want to be a part of that for whatever reason, because I can make a decent living or I don't have fear of fear of flying or whatever, or maybe I need to be setting my sights for this bigger show. That's sort of finally coming into, into fruition. Um, There's a lot there, Tim. Let me try to pick some of it apart and then Jay can jump in too. What you've got right now. Um, are right now being the fifties are players who um, see basketball um, possibly as a career, but more uh, likely something they just really enjoy doing and competing and financially, particularly if you've got a family, um, not necessarily something that you can hang your hat on. So, really top players yes you know they're they're really trying to make it into the nba um but those fringe players those bubble players they got a choice they can hang around make some money be a professional basketball player or if they've got kids and you know a career it kind of makes sense for them or at least for some of them to just like i said play weekends and stay in the eastern league but that's for some players for other players uh, who would really like the opportunity and have the ability to play uh, in the Eastern League, in the NBA, the Eastern League is kind of all that's open to them because of race. Because what you also have going on in the 50s is very limited opportunities, an unwritten quota most 
former players and uh, observers, officials would say, an unwritten quota going on in the NBA of at first one and maybe two or three African-American players per team. So you had a lot of great players uh, who uh, today would be NBA All-Stars who didn't have the opportunity to make it into the NBA because of race. The NBA broke the color barrier in 1950, right? Uh, Chuck Cooper, Sweetwater Clifton, uh, Lloyd, uh, Earl Lloyd, uh, and then later Hank, Hank Dezoni uh, joined the league. Um, the Eastern League had three or four African-American players its first few seasons. And there was uh, no, no East, uh, African-American players for a couple of years. Then when the guys involved the gambling scandal came in, uh, a large number of African-American players and that just continued so that by the late 1950s, early 60s, the league, the Eastern League, if not predominantly black, was certainly 50-50. It was mixed. The Eastern League had its first black, all-black starting lineup in the 1955-56 season. Uh, the NBA didn't have one until 1964, the Boston Celtics. So in a sense, what you had was, I won't say it was like the Negro Leagues because it was integrated, but it served the same purpose as the Negro Leagues. Some of the really best African-American players in the country could only play in the Eastern League or couldn't, couldn't play in the NBA. So the Eastern League was the next best opportunity. They would have liked to play in the Eastern League, but numbers were very limited and doubly limited for them. Um, but yes, there were players who were hoping that they could work their way up to the uh, NBA. Um, um, and some players did. There were a number of players who would go back and forth, play a few games. And there were a number of players who played in the NBA who, you know, would get cut and then they'd play in the Eastern League and hope to work their way back. So for the players, there was a sense that, yes, it's either uh, a step on the way up or a stepping stone on the way down or an alternative uh, for those of us who would be fringe NBA players, but this way get a leg up in career and still play a highly competitive level of basketball. For the owner's perspective, what the Eastern League desperately always, always wanted was a pl an agreement, a working agreement with the NBA that would be similar to what baseball had with minor leagues. They wanted money. They wanted NBA teams to pay them a certain amount of players, a certain amount of money to, to take care of their players and then groom them to get up to the NBA. And that never really happened for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of which was when the Eastern League opened its doors to the gamblers, the NBA didn't want anything to do with that. So that kind of put a, a, a bit of a damper on it. Um, so you, you have the Eastern League kind of flirting with the NBA, trying to keep a good relationship with it. You've got some teams who are sending players down. You've got some Eastern League owners who are developing relationships with executives uh, of the NBA. Some teams were able to develop kind of informal relationships, but you didn't have a formal working agreement between the Eastern League and the NBA until very late in the Eastern League's life. And then the CBA started one up, but that's the late 70s, early 80s. Um, so you're right. There is this kind of, we've got our eye on it. We want to be part of it. But the NBA is kind of evolving and the Eastern League is kind of taking its role as perhaps a place where we can 
get some experience and players and referees can work their way up. Um, but it's not a, a, a kind of formal thing in the sense of minor league baseball. Does that make sense? Sure. So, so it seems to me that, that any relationship between the NBA and, and maybe later with the ABA and all that was, was enormously informal, uh, if at all, uh, with relation to players moving up, moving down, moving sideways. Right, right. It, it, it really was. And in fact, you know, uh, uh, the NBA um, took advantage of the Eastern League. Um, they would sign players, uh, and certainly the ABA did too. And then the Eastern League would say, well, we've got rights to, to these guys. And the NBA would kind of laugh at them at, the, at their contract and just sign the players and, you know, not pay the Eastern League owners for their rights. So it was, you know, it, 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 it was, uh, it was there. It was scrapping. It was trying to get its seat at the table. Uh, but it never really did get that recognition during most of its lifetime. So yeah, that, that's correct. It's kind of informal. It's we'll take players, good players from your league, but we're not really gonna, gonna be financial partners in any way. So, um, I think that would be a, a fair way to describe it. And Tim, Tim, what I'm just thinking of are a couple of things. Um, we know that there was the uh, uh, unwritten, um, um, oh, geez. Um, <laughs> so what's the word? The, the, quota. Quota, the uh, quota, unwritten quota on uh, black players. Uh, in addition with that, the NBA teams um, felt that the uh, black players weren't weren't playing the right way. They were, you know, too loose, too fast. Um, and um, many of the, uh, of the um, NBA teams stuck with the uh, big colleges. Uh, they did not recruit um, from the, uh, like, black, historical black college uh, teams. Um, and, um, you know, that, that was their loss, that uh, the Eastern League uh, – was able to uh, to benefit from bringing in players like Cleo Hill, um, um, and uh, uh, who else? Uh, oh, um, um, Wait Wait Bellamy from uh, Florida State Florida A and M University. Great players who uh, could definitely have played in the NBA, but um, wasn't for them. Yeah, and, and you know, I mean, the other thing going on in the NBA, the kind of players that they took certainly for most of the 1950s, um, the African-American players who were allowed into the, into the NBA were role players. Uh, the owners did not want African-American players who were going to be stars. As Jay said, Cleo Hill is the classic example. They didn't want their scores to be African-American players. African-American players were expected to rebound, play defense, run the floor, and feed the white guys who did the scoring. So you had some great great players who were natural scorers like and i love this name hal king lear you ever hear of king lear not sure. shakespeare no yeah yeah, yeah. sure of course <laughs> famous famous Temple right. university great score the guy scored 50 or more points like a dozen times in the eastern league he was awesome um but he was a scorer so uh he played at temple his backcourt made at temple guy rogers who was a great playmaker and great point guard now he had an nba career he was a playmaker. King Lear was a scorer. Wasn't any room for him in the NBA in the mid-1950s. Okay? 
So he became one of the great scorers in the Eastern League. Wally Choice from Indiana. Another one. Callier played four games in the NBA. Wally Choice played, I don't think he played any. Uh, got another guy, Stacy Arsenal, New York City high school legend, played uh, eight games. Richie Gaines, uh, Seton Hall All-American, tough as nails, a Charles Barkley type player, little shorter, 6'3", 230, 240. Tough, tough, tough guy. Uh, great player in the, in the Eastern League. Tommy Hemans. The list goes on and on. These are great African-American players who would be NBA stars today, all-time greats in the NBA today. Didn't have a chance to play in the Eastern League. Were they embittered? Some were. Hal Lear wasn't. He ended up becoming uh, going into a management uh, training program for the city of Philadelphia, had a great professional career, made money. He said he ended up making more money playing weekends in the Eastern League and uh, on barnstorming teams, plus his professional career, than he would have in the NBA at the time. So, um, you know, um, it was, uh, it, 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 it was a, a difficult time. One other guy who, you know, you think of as a coach, but John Chaney. Um, John Chaney was a terrific player in the Eastern League. He was a great ball handler. He was he played for the Harlem Globetrotters. He was a, he was a, a magician with the basketball. He was lightning fast, and he played the way he coaches in your face all the time. He was chest to chest, and he was proud of his defense. Loved playing defense. Loved getting stops, and he was a terrific scrappy player in the Eastern League. Uh, Hubie Brown, who played in the Eastern League, said Cheney would have been a 10-year NBA player. Um, we don't know. We didn't see these guys play. People aren't aware of how good they were, and they're playing in Scranton and Wilkes-Barre and Trenton and Allentown and Camden and Wilmington. And what a, what, what a privilege we had as kids to see these great players play. And now we realize that at the time we didn't realize what great talent we were seeing literally, you know, five feet in front of us, because these are small gyms for the most part. Um, so, uh, you know, you look back on it, the one thing that came across when we were interviewing these guys is just how grateful they were that someone was finally telling their story, that uh, people were, were finally going to find out how, how good they were as players. And, uh, you know, in the case of some of them, the opportunities that they were denied. And, and Tim, also on that, that uh, line of... Uh topic um many eastern league players became successful as coaches uh in um they learned a lot and uh amazingly uh um i'll give you some examples uh, in, bob weiss an nba coach for many teams hubie brown who still just mentioned uh great great hall of fame pl- coach for the atlanta hawks uh, knicks um larry costello um, he came, uh, he played one year in the Eastern League, and then he, he, um, he uh, uh, became a coach in, um, in the NBA. Jack Ramsey from the Philadelphia 76ers. I think we mentioned him before, and Jack McCloskey, who I think Sylvan mentioned before. And then as far as college coaches, you have John Chaney, you have Jim Beheim. Another one who was a great coach, he only played a couple of years in the Eastern League, but George Raveling. Uh, terrific coach at uh, University of Washington and Villanova guy, George Blaney. Um, he was a uh, 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 he, he coached head coach at Holy Cross and Seton Hall, and he was the uh, assistant coach at I, at uh, UConn, um, and um, you know a bunch of others. 
So these players learned a lot in the Eastern League, and they they're definitely you know succeeded. Give me a sense of of what happens to the league uh, once the ABA comes onto the scene in '67 or so, because it seems to me that that it, that has some kind of inflection uh, that radiates onto the Eastern League. Uh, it's now the second, if you will, major professional top tier uh, uh, hoops league uh, in the country. It's obviously, uh, uh, you know, one of the uh, arguably the, the whole decade uh, to follow is just full of challenger leagues. And Lord knows we've had great conversations with, um, uh, with our pal Dennis Murphy, who was sort of uh, instrumental in, in getting that uh, set up and stuff, but it had to be, I won't call it maybe a shot across the bow, but it, but it certainly probably had to make the Eastern league kind of, uh, perhaps rethink its role maybe now that here it was this sort of second audacious pro league to kind of just shoot up out of, out of nowhere along with the NBA. Well, the ABA was really the beginning of the end for the old Eastern league um, because I, somewhere close to 30 players uh, left the Eastern league in its first two seasons in 67 and 68 after the ABA was formed. Well, I'm sorry. Um, before you go further, was it liter- Was it a, uh, a, a just a, a, a proving ground and or a recruitment uh, vehicle for the ABA? Was it is that one of the first places they went to to sort of stock up on talent as they get? get oh going? yeah, did, yeah. Did you re- ever read Terry Pluto's book Loose Balls? Oh, it's of course. We've been trying to get Terry on the show for years, and someday we'll get him. I, I mean, that describes what it was like. They, they were going everywhere looking for players, but one of the places they looked was the Eastern League. And they took the top tier of talent. I can't remember the statistic. I should have prepared for the game. But I think, you know, the 10 guys on the all um, uh, Eastern League team at the end of the 1966-67 season, um, eight of them ended up in the, in the, uh, in the ABA in 67. With some, uh, with some big time, at least promised paychecks, right? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly better than what they're making in the Eastern League. Um, uh, but th- that was the thing. Um, the money, again, now it's just starting to become decent money. It's not It's not w- what we're looking at today. Um, so, I mean, I-, I-, I couldn't put a figure on it, but I doubt these guys are making more than ten, fifteen thousand 15000 a season. Uh, even then, you know, in the mid-60s, uh, possibly twenty. But no more than that to play in to play in the ABA. But you had you know top tier players like I say I think eight of the the the, the all east eight of the ten guys in the all eastern league team bolted for the ABA, um, and they became some of the ABA's early stars: uh, Laverne Jelly Tart, Hank Whitney, Larry Jones. These, these were top players. Walter Simon uh, became a, a a great scorer uh, in the in the uh, ABA. Um, but for a lot of players, that next tier of players, um, there were a bunch more who stayed in the Eastern League. Now, let me mention a couple. Um, Wade Bellamy, who Jay mentioned before, great scorer, but he said the ABA was looking to get guys cheap. And by this time, he had two kids, and he's teaching in Wilmington, Delaware. Um, so, you know, the money he would have made to play, you know, in the, in the uh, ABA wasn't uh, attractive enough for him to leave his teaching job and the money he made in the Eastern League. Same thing with Swish McKinney, one of the great names ever. Um, Swish, Cleveland Swish McKinney, but everyone called him Swish. You ever hear Swish McKinney? I have now. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, oh, he's something. 
one of the greatest players. Sonny Hill called him one of the greatest Eastern League players no one ever heard about. Swish McKinney was a self-made player, grew up in Oakland, California, went to famous McClyman's High School, which produced Bill Russell's, Beta Pinson, Cornell Green, on and on. Great athletes came out of uh, McClyman's High School in Oakland. Swish uh, was a, a high school athlete at 16. The principal tells him, basically, you've passed all of our classes. There's no more classes, courses available for you to take. Uh, you're going to have to leave. So he said, what? He goes, but, you know, I, I want to play basketball. He goes, well, nope, you've taken all of our courses. Swish was a bright guy, good student. So at 16, he's got to leave high school. He kind of tools around, goes to community college for a while, ends up in the Army, gets stationed in Panama, where he's put in charge of a rec center, spends 8, 10, 12 hours a day playing basketball at the rec center at the Army base in the Panama Canal, uh, becomes an all-Army basketball player, plays on the 1963 Pan Am team with Willis Reed and some other great players, gets a look with the St. Louis Hawks, but you know, he said, I got into camp and I counted the number of African-American players and I knew I wasn't going to make it. And Swish became one of the great scorers in the Eastern League. And as George Blaney said, you go through life with the name like Swish, you got to be able to back it up. And the thing about him is he did. You know, he was just just a great shooter, great scorer. So, um, you know, these guys stay because they've got a good thing going in the Eastern League and they've got careers. Swish ended up with Binghamton working for IBM and ended up having a very successful career as an IT specialist, computer science, and he taught computer sciences at a, at a junior college. So, um, you know, some of them stayed, some of them sought after the, went after the money. Um, um, but what happened, you, you, you really lost that top tier of NBA level talent for the most part was gone. You still had a lot of good players left in the Eastern League. You still had competitive games, but that top tier, those really, really great players, they're now playing professionally either in the NBA or the ABA because now the NBA is starting to expand too. You know, they're going from 12 to 17 teams. So now you got 20 some teams, you know, so now the talent pool isn't as deep as it was for the Eastern League. The thing that was going on, the interesting thing, though, is that style of play that we loved in the Eastern League, that above the rim, real fast, kind of not a lot of D, you know, 152, 146 final score games. That style and the three-point play, the three-pointer, all that is now in the ABA. The ABA picked up that style of basketball that was being played in the Eastern League. Um, and now you've got TV, people watching games on TV. So between losing the top tier players, <laughs> between the availability of games on TV, and you know we're now in the late sixties, early seventies, you've got an economic recession that's clobbering the small towns in the Rust Belt. You don't have a lot of money for entertainment. Attendance is going down. The Eastern League starts fading, and the fade is fairly rapid. Uh, by the mid seventies, you're down to like four teams one year, and it looked like the Eastern League was going to fold. They were able to expand, add some teams. Well, they, they even changed the name of the league, too. They became an association. I'm wondering right. if that was the beginnings of harboring some kind of, I don't know, at least consciousness or understanding that if they were going to continue, even maybe in a, I don't know, perhaps official someday minor league capacity, that they would have to kind of 
uh, I don't know, up their game somehow in terms of structure and, and, and coordination and, and, and locations. And I, I don't know, I'm just, I'm projecting. No, 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 you, you, you're right. Because the whole uh, idea of changing to the Eastern Basketball Association was to create a parallel to the American Basketball Association and the National Basketball Association. That was the thinking behind it at the time. And they are still. Uh, so wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So, so you're saying that that at least in the in in name and maybe in uh, uh, assumption that they were trying to maybe kind of at least frame up the idea of being in a, 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 perhaps a, a an equal third league. Not an equal third league, a minor league. Okay, fair enough. A minor league. They 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 never aspired to be an equal third league. All they wanted was to get that working agreement. They wanted to be a minor league system in the same way that baseball had a minor league system. So that, that was the kind of parallel and name that they were trying, trying to get. But, um, you know, again, the, the, the NBA wasn't interested in, in, in anything like that. And, and it, neither was, neither was the ABA brand new to the scene. No, no, the ABA kind of, there were some lawsuits between the ABA and the Eastern league. They just signed players and uh, didn't compensate the Eastern League for. So uh, there were, the, you know, the the early years of the ABA were, I mean, that was also kind of a, a Wild West situation. You had teams and ownership groups coming and going. Uh, the last thing the ABA was going to do was commit to some sort of financial arrangement for supporting a minor league. They were just lucky to keep each team afloat and get their seasons going. And, and the ABA was formed basically hoping that, you know, whatever team survived someday would be able to merge with the NBA, which is what they did. Yeah. So, oh, my, yeah. oh, by the way, basketball, not necessarily knowledge necessarily uh, required for, for being an owner in the league. And, and as we learned from Dennis Murphy, a lot of it was, Hey, let's get these franchises sold first and we'll figure out the rest later. Exactly. 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 And to the extent there were Eastern league players who could, you know, work their way up to the ABA or the NBA. Great. But neither of the two major leagues, uh, felt any there was any uh, reason for them to develop some sort of financial relationship with the Eastern League. Eastern League was kind of on its own. All right, let me um, let me just uh, let, let's just sort of get to sort of near the uh, the the end here, and then and then Jay, I want to kind of maybe wrap up with you with some um, you know some notable names and or legacy kind of uh, components of this. But I I think it's important to kind of maybe sort of set the tone for I guess the the end of the what is now the EBA, um, because it's important to sort of leave this on the doorstep of what what ultimately it becomes in the latter part of the 70s. Um, but it's interesting because it seems like the, the 70s are dominated for this league uh, in that sort of vein of trying to become somehow uh, more formally related to uh, to the big uh, the big NBA as sort of a feeder slash minor league sort of. Uh, component. I, I think that's kind of what essentially happens by the end of the decade. But I think it's really interesting. We talked about this on email. There, there's there's an interesting story about one of the teams uh, that comes into the mix that kind of just forces the issue. And I think it'll be obvious once you describe what that team is and, and why they were brought in. Yeah, we're talking about Anchorage, Alaska. Um, and I guess it's 1975, I believe. And there's a new owner, a new commissioner of the Eastern League, 
And I got to tell the story of, of how Steve Kaufman became commissioner of the Eastern League. Eastern League had four teams left at the end of the 1974-75 season. It looked like it was going to fold. Uh, the commissioner had been one of the former team owners who was kind of a part-time commissioner, and he didn't really want to do it anymore. The league was kind of folding. They're looking for a new commissioner. And there's this young lawyer in Philadelphia named Steve Kaufman who loves sports, and he's got a CPA, and he's got his law degree, and he's starting a tax accounting firm, and he's like 26 years old. And his father-in-law just you know, loves talking about Steve. And his father-in-law goes to this diner every morning outside of Philadelphia for breakfast, and he's a regular. And one of the other regulars, Stan Novak, who's the longtime great coach in the Eastern League. And the father-in-law talks to Novak and says, I've got a son-in-law who would love to work for your league. Uh, Novak says, have him talk to me. So they arrange to get together for lunch. Novak meets Kaufman. Kaufman says, you know, I really love sports. I'd love to get a job in the Eastern League. I'll do anything. I'll keep score. You name it. And Novak looks at him and says, how do you like to be commissioner? <laughs> and Novak's thinking, he might, and not Novak, Kaufman's thinking, you must be nuts. But he goes, well, I got to think about it. And then he said, I literally woke up three o'clock in the morning. Goes, what do you mean? Think about it. Of course I got to do this. So Kaufman becomes the commissioner of the league at 26. There's no rules. There's no bylaws. There's nothing. This is all an informal seat of the pants league, all word of mouth, all handshakes. So he's trying to dress up this league, form this league. Somehow a few other teams are added. And now they're not the small Pennsylvania teams now. They're uh, kind of going out into slightly larger cities like Springfield and Quincy, Massachusetts, and Brooklyn's got a team. And Kaufman um, gets a phone call one day from a guy in Anchorage, Alaska, who basically says, we got a lot of oil money up here. We love basketball. We'd like to be part of your league. So Kaufman takes it to the league owners and all the you know Pennsylvania small town owners are going, oh, wait a minute, Anchorage, Alaska? Well, Anchorage, they, they want to be in the league so badly that they've offered to pay travel expenses. They'll guarantee, you know, travel expenses and and uh, expenses for, for, for making the trip. So, you know, the league owners are still skeptical. They think, eh, you know, this is going to be costly someday for us if we have to travel out to Alaska. But Kaufman convinces enough of them that it'll be good in the league's you know, long-term interest. So they allow... Uh, for the 76-77 season, they allow um, uh, uh, Anchorage into the league. And uh, they start getting some publicity. Uh, they realize, uh, you know, it's a good thing. Um, now some other mid-sized cities are interested. And uh, it kind of gets the league, you know, it gets it through its tough times and it's surviving. But, you know, now they're looking for teams all around you know, the country, not just in the East. So travel is becoming an issue for the smaller market teams, the old line, old Eastern League teams. So kind of one by one, they start dropping off. They can't afford to travel places like South Dakota and stuff like that. And even at one point, Hawaii had a team. So um, they decide, well, you know, if we're really going to be a league that's going to be nationwide and if we're going to get the attention of the NBA so that they'll want to develop a relationship with us. We can't be the Eastern League anymore. We got to have a name that reflects more our status. And they have an owner's meeting. And basically the newer teams are all for, let's 
change the name, let's expand, let's go all over the country. And the two or three owners left from Pennsylvania are digging their heels and say, no, we can't afford this, it's gonna kill us. Um, so Steve Kaufman or, is no longer the commissioner now, he's gone on, he's now become a player agent for some of the former players who, who played in the league. Uh, the new commissioner is a guy named Jim Drucker and uh, Drucker convinces the league that uh, the owners to change their name to the Continental Basketball Association to reflect the fact that they are now a nationwide continental league. Um, and he promises that if the small town owners can't afford it, the league will buy their franchises at a fair market value. And that's basically what happens. The league expands to mid-sized cities uh, that have arenas and have corporate sponsorship. And one by one, all of the old Eastern League teams leave. Uh, Drucker gets a relationship with the NBA uh, where they will um, uh, pay a certain stipend each year to the league, uh, to the East, to the CBA, um, and provide players. And more importantly, the uh, CBA becomes the... Um, a training ground for referees. They start providing referees for the NBA. So that long-awaited, long-sought-after relationship with the NBA finally comes to fruition, but not until after the Eastern League is gone with the CBA, the Continental Basketball Association. Kind of a matter of metamorphosis, right? In order to in order to live, you got to die, right? And uh, it just it just seems <laughs> an odd way to finally get to what for years and years was sort of uh, on the radar as a, as a hope for, for this, uh, for this league that, that, you know, really kind of had some really humble origins uh, and almost to the, to the end was, you know, a, a decidedly uh, Eastern and an almost Pennsylvania league. Um, it, was a mom, it was a mom and pop league, no doubt about it. And uh, yeah. Um, and uh, it evolved, it, it developed, it, it stayed on in in a new form, uh, but it lost that kind of local small town character that made it distinctive and that Jay and I fell in love with when we were kids. I just can't imagine, you know, a 5,000 mile away franchise. Uh, you're, you're making all the, that, 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 that long trek to play in a high school gym in, in Anchorage, Alaska, uh, just to, to tie it together. But it's, it, to me, that's fascinating. I mean, just unwittingly uh, fascinating sort of evolution of what then became a similarly intriguing uh, Continental Basketball Association. All right, before we before we sort of uh, dial off here, um, Jay, maybe you can sort of maybe give us sort of the uh, the denouement here, uh, not only not of the story per se, but of sort of the the lasting embers, I guess, of this league, because uh, you guys both sort of mentioned it before. And, and we talked about a number of names, legendary at those when the coaching ranks and, and players that, that wound up playing and stuff. But it seems to me, based on what I've read in this book and what you sort of have hinted at during the course of our conversation, uh, that there was, uh, you know, an absolute sort of, um, you know, hagiography uh, around this, right? Uh, despite all the the challenges of travel and the the low pay and the, you know, the, you know, not even minor league status, if you will, when it, with respect to say the ABA or the the NBA, there was just absolutely, it seems, almost to a person that was part of this league, uh, a, a love and a, and a a, a a fond reminiscence around uh, a league maybe that didn't uh, get its due until maybe fairly recently, as we dig into this. 
Well, one thing I, that I think of is when we uh, have spoken with players and coaches and so on, um, how they um, uh, were, were, you know, wanted to talk about the way it was in the old days and, and especially in the um, uh, quirky things. Now, you, you just mentioned high school gyms uh, um, off in Alaska or whatever. Um, the Eastern League was, was well known for having quirky gyms. Um, especially in the one, one in Sunbury, uh, Pennsylvania, where um, uh, the gym had a wall so close to one of the baskets that, that the players had to, had to go up vertically to make a layup. Um, they are, that, that same gym uh, uh, had uh, uh, a stage right next to the playing, playing uh, you know, floor. And, um, you know, Players are saying you have to like run around um, to, to just just get back in into a uh, make to take a shot. You, you have to kind of like uh, uh, go all over. Um, you also had uh, a, a Kingston Armory. Uh, this is uh, in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. And um, the, the the thing about that people every time we would get together, not every time we'd get together, but many times we'd get together talk about the old days. Um, this uh, Kingston Armory was very big. Um, there was only one shower in one shower room for both teams. And, and that's, you know, I, so I think of, you know, you get a kick out of these stories. And that's kind of what, you know, my kind of takeaway is that, that it was a, a, a great period of time. Uh, the world was different. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, that's one of the reasons that Sul and I wrote this book. We wanted to... Uh, to uh, get the story known of what these players did for so many years. What do you guys sort of see the, the history of these teams kind of living on? I, I would imagine because the successor of the EBL slash EBA, uh, you know, became the CBA, which itself had its own fits and starts and, and then untimely or maybe timely demise uh, decades later. Um, but, you know, what we kind of, uh, for whatever reason, we kind of obsess about sort of where, uh, original teams and and maybe previously domiciled franchises and stuff, you know, might sort of live on, I guess, uh, truly, you know, legitimately uh, when it comes to things like throwbacks and memories and, and institutional histories and stuff and, and whatnot. Um, it would seem that, that many of these uh, teams and, and a lot of the league, uh, as we've described it kind of maybe just sort of resides in its own little, I guess, historical cul-de-sac versus sort of being adopted or, uh, you know, uh, enveloped by, you know, uh, say a Philadelphia 76ers, for example, or, or, or any of those kinds of things. I, I guess what I'm, what I'm struggling to find out is besides you guys going back and, and unearthing and uh, shining a light on this, uh, uh, you know, long forgotten, but, but arguably very contributive uh, team, a uh, league uh, to, uh, to the existence of pro basketball, where, where, where could one sort of legitimately, sort of find and, and celebrate these histories or are those basically just sort of uh, cast off to the, uh, the dustbins of, I don't know, the hall of fame and, and people's memories. Not even the hall of fame. I mean, you're right. Um, this story would not have been told, but for this book, I mean, to be honest with you, the, the Eastern league is much beloved by anybody and everybody who played in it, grew up watching it. 
Uh, I mean, it, there is a, a, a reverence, uh, a, a fondness for the league, both uh, from the players and the fans and the owners and the referees. Um, but that story was never told. Uh, there's no book been written about the Eastern League. Charlie Rosen has written a number of basketball books that mention the Eastern League to some extent. There have been some chapters about the Eastern League in some books. The Eastern League gets mentioned in loose balls when I talk about the formation of the ABA. But really, the story was in danger of dying uh, with the players uh, and the people who watched it uh, until, you know, until our book comes out. Um, uh, and I can't tell you, I mean, it was universal. Every player we talked with, everyone was saying how glad they were that finally someone is writing a story about the Eastern League so that people will know about it. Hubie Brown told us many times, and we talked to him, Hubie Brown has been great. He was a player for, I think, three years in the Eastern League and absolutely every time said, you're doing a great thing. You're bringing back to life some great old-time basketball players who no who very few people have ever heard of, and now people know about them. Now people know about the league. Several players have said, "You know, the uh, NBA, the Hall of Fame, the Naismith Memorial Hall of Fame, really should have a section or an exhibit or something on the Eastern League." To my knowledge, they don't. And if you've got any contacts at the Hall of Fame, and if anyone out there has any contacts at the Hall of Fame, we got to get a, a little section on the Eastern League established so that people know about it. It was a great part of professional basketball. The Eastern League, in many ways, paved the way for today's NBA because the style of play that they're playing in the East in the NBA today—that's what they're playing in the Eastern League in the 1950s. So you know. Um, it, it is a story that was in danger of disappearing. And I'll tell you, when Jay and I started this book, we didn't think we were doing this historical service. But I think we very quickly learned, you know, as we were talking to guys like Hubie Brown and John Cheney, Howie Landa, um, how important this story is and how important it is that it gets told, uh, particularly for African-American players who never had that chance to play in the NBA and get the recognition they deserve. People need to know how good Wally Choice was, how good Richie Gaines was, how great Al Lear was, Swish McKinney, all these guys. You know, Bill Spivey deserves that his story told, too. So, I mean, I think that's that's what we're doing. That's what this book does. It tells the story of a lot of great basketball players um, who were born a generation too soon. And, Tim, uh, along these lines, um, as an example of, of the appreciation that many people have for the Eastern League, there's a Facebook page, uh, an Eastern League Facebook page that's got still, what, uh, a thousand members? That's over a thousand, oh. yeah. And uh, it's very, uh, very busy over there. Um, and and uh, you could just tell these, these people remember the league, love the league, love the players. Um, and uh, just, just uh, you know, that's all I can think of for that. But, but, I, but I think it's, it's, it's worth remembering. Well, why do you think, last question, why, why do you think the, the Hall of Fame has not really sort of fully embraced and given this league its due? Is it because it was, quote unquote, minor league because it was, you know, kind of chipping away at the NBA or bringing up some issues around things like race and, and points, uh, the betting sort of uh, scandals and all that kind of stuff that 
that they don't want to sort of remember and maybe want to just wallpaper over or just overall ignorance? What, what, what is it? I'm guessing they don't know about it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I really don't. And I'll tell you, I, I have sent some queries to the Hall of Fame and I've gotten no response. I, I, I don't know. But I really, uh, you know, that's that's kind of the next thing on our to do list is uh, see if we can contact the Hall of Fame. And, and uh, God knows we've done the research. And there are other people out there who are crazier than we are who've compiled uh, uh, statistical information about the Eastern League. As Jay was saying, there's some real fans out there uh, who've got all kinds. There, there are a, enough people who could contribute data and mementos and stories and pictures and whatever the Hall of Fame needs to put together an exhibit uh, or in a section on the Eastern League. Um, I don't know why there isn't. Um, and, and who knows? I mean, maybe there is something there, that, but I'm just not aware. Of. Um, um, so it's it, it, it kind of was a story that was in danger of disappearing. Um, not sure why. Uh, I think it was one of those you had to be there. <laughs> and one of my uh, regrets was that we didn't think of writing, uh, decide to write the book sooner. Sol and I yeah. talked... Every so often for years, we would say, um, you know, th this is these great, great Eastern League stories or, or, or you know, we, we ought to write a book. And we just we just never we were both working at the time, probably. And uh, it, it's a shame. And, and it's partly because we've lost a lot of uh, former players and coaches and so on no longer with us, unfortunately. And um, uh you know, so that that to me is the thing is that, you know, we should have we should have done this sooner. All right. Our thanks to Jay and Syl. That was great. I, uh, you know, shame on all of us for not knowing more about this, uh, this great league and, and very much a, a solid uh, part of the uh, the fabric of the pro game for sure. And, and arguably the uh, the collegiate game, too. Right? Jim Beheim lives and breathes very vitally in uh, the uh, the Syracuse uh, basketball firmament. Uh, again, much as it pains me to say that, uh, wink, wink, nod, nod. And uh, just part of uh, the legend of this league. And, and thank goodness for uh, his great memories. And thanks uh, greatly, too, to the uh, the guys for uh, finally putting it into convenient book form and, and hopefully not the last of the uh, explorations uh, by them and us into the mighty, mighty Eastern Professional Basketball League, or perhaps the Eastern Pennsylvania Basketball League, or maybe even the Eastern Basketball Association, whatever way you remember it. Uh, just remember it, will you? And um, we uh, thank uh, all those gentlemen for uh, for uh, those contributions and then some. Let's uh, get you a copy of this book, shall we? It's called Boxed Out of the NBA, Remembering the Eastern Professional Basketball League. It is by our guests this week, Syl Sobel and Jay Rosenstein, forwarded by the great longtime sports writer, Bob Ryan. It is available from our friends at Roman and Littlefield. Uh, let's see. I think it's officially being released on the 14th of April. So depending on when you're listening to this, uh, it is either soon to be released or it is already out. Uh, if it's in the soon to be released category, uh, by all means, go to Amazon.com or, or there are plenty of other places you could pre-order it or go to our website at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com and search up this episode number 209 and uh, just click on the link and you'll uh, give us a few shekels of love and consideration. Thank you very much. 
and uh, you'll be whisked away to Amazon and you can pre-order it there and you'll get it just as soon as it's uh, out, either in Kindle form or in hardcover. Uh, if it is the 14th or after of April, what are you waiting for? You absolutely have no excuse now. Uh, same uh, rules apply, just that you'll be able to get the book probably within a day or so of ordering it. So either way, you will have this book sooner rather than later. Uh, it certainly won't be too long and uh, highly encourage you to get it. I've uh, I've had the pleasure of having it in my hot little hands, at least digitally, for at least the last four months or so. And uh, it's chock full of great stuff. And uh, you basketball fiends uh, will eat it up for sure. Highly encouraged, again, boxed out of the NBA and we appreciate uh, you considering uh, a purchase. And uh, we also appreciate you, uh, again, visiting our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, that's where all of our old episodes and all of our current and future episodes will be found. Uh, and, of course, you'll find all of our social links there. Uh, Twitter at Good Seats Still, Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, on uh, Facebook, I think we're at Good Seats Still Available as well uh, there. Uh, and you will... Uh, also be able to find a link to our email address, which happens to be hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, always happy to have your notes from that. And uh, on the website, you will find a link, should you like to receive it, our weekly email newsletter. It gives you a little tip sheet as to what we're going to be talking about this uh, coming week. Uh, let's see. Uh, I don't know how much uh, we... Oh, yeah, we want to say to our pal Jerry Payne. How could we forget Jerry? The great doctor, the good doctor. Uh, good, great, depends on the day, depends on the time you ask him. But uh, we, of course, always appreciate his efforts. And uh, thank you for, of course, twiddling the knobs and uh, adjusting the sound and making us sound somewhat decent once again this week. Thank you, kind sir. And, of course, thank you to everybody out there in listener land. Uh, we'll uh, talk to you soon. More good things afoot and coming up. Stay safe, please. And uh, please, let's also enjoy some spring. We've uh, all earned it, I think. And uh, take care until next week. Bye.